Welcome to Challenging Silence, a podcast from Women's Health and Women's Science Community Health Center. On this show, we are having much needed discussions about topics related to female genital mutilation or cutting with survivors, advocates, and community members. We're your hosts, Tommy Lola and Nanti. Challenging Silence is brought to you by the Flourish Project, made possible through funding from Women and Gender Equality Canada. You can listen to this podcast series on all major podcast listening platforms and our website, flourishaccess.ca. Please note that this podcast covers topics of a sensitive nature, including domestic abuse and violence. To ensure privacy and safety, some guests have chosen to remain anonymous. This podcast is age appropriate for 16 plus. Whether it is promoting more affordable housing or the protection of women's rights, advocacy is an important way to initiate changes in the society. And advocacy enables people to be heard. It promotes problem solving and participation, and it influences laws, policies, and practices. Anti-FGMC advocates, both in immigrant receiving nations and FGMC practicing nations are playing an important role in achieving the 2030 Sustainable Development Goal to end female genital mutilation. By educating communities about the dangers and challenging the stigma around uncut girls, advocates are raising more awareness of the practice internationally and are leading local initiatives to fight FGMC and protect girls at risk. Today, we have activist and Flourish Advisory Committee member, Matida, joining us to talk about FGMC activism and empowering survivors and girls at risk. Welcome, Matida, and please tell us more about yourself. Oh, thank you so much. I am Matida. I'm a Gambian. I identify myself, um, or see myself at least as I'm a feminist activist, an anti-FGM activist. I'm a mother. I'm a student. And I'm many things. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Matida. As an anti-FGMC advocate, working to end the practice and empower survivors, tell us about the beginning of your journey to advocacy and your experience working to make a positive difference in your community. I've been in this field of like pushing back against the practice of female genital mutilation for, I would say, a good decade and almost half now. The beginning where I started, I mean, I am from an FGMC practicing community. I see community members, I see family members undergo this practice. And as a young girl at the time, I didn't know what it means. I was curious. And at, at certain points, I was enriched, right? I was mad. But there was little I could do at that time. However, just seeing that and, and the, the, the anger, the curiosity in me kind of like ignited something which got me into this activism field. And in the beginning, sometimes it's just like having a conversation with family members, just getting their views about these things because I know it's hard right it's a very deeply rooted cultural practice it's it's very much sensitive within our communities to to talk about anything that has to do with sex and sexuality and because that clitoris that is cut 
from a woman. It, it's, it's very like sensitive to talk about. And again, like in my community, there are different forms, um, not to say like that is just the only way. I recognize that there are many other, two, at least three other forms of female genital mutilation where sometimes like the clitoris is not even, even tampered. But, but again, like in my community, this is the most common practice. And like just talking about that was pretty hard. However, it started from there, just mustering that courage to say, you know what, I'm going to have this conversation with some family members. I'm going to have this conversation with community members. I'm going to have this conversation with my friends. It wasn't as easy, right? This is, this is a very not so welcome idea. It's not a so much welcome conversation that people want to be having with their, with their kids. And I was not old enough at the time also. However, because I, I consider it as not only a passion, but also like something so dear to me, I call it a calling. I would say like, this is probably my calling. This is probably what I should be doing. I began to build interest, special interest in the area. And that is how my advocacy started. I, I got myself a diploma at the time in women and gender studies, just, just to understand, like have some, some tools to advocate and since then, this would be many, many years ago, I then worked with some women's rights organizations. I worked with both local and sub-regional non-governmental organizations in the Gambia, and by extension, part of Senegal, southern Senegal, Kazakhmans, and also some parts of Guinea-Bissau. So just having that interaction with committee members all gave me the courage, and eventually um, myself, my friend, and some like-minded friends like came together and we established the girls agenda which is a grassroots feminist organization that pushes back against female genital mutilation you know it's it's hard but i just wanted to say like negative traditional practices that is not to say we don't have very positive traditional practices we do have so many of them but things such as arranged and early marriages were very prevalent and yeah so the organization we established was mainly focused in pushing back these things but female genital mutilation was of course the core of what we had to tackle or push back yeah Thank you so much for sharing that. And you did share that you were enraged and felt anger towards this issue. And that was part of the driving force to you becoming an advocate. What else drives you in your advocacy work? And can you share what difficulties you've encountered along this journey of advocacy? Um, yes, like the passion or beyond person, person actually, it's this force, this need to do something. If we all are afraid, if we all don't want to take risk, our girls would still be exposed to so many things. And with my background, like I am from a very small community, a very small village, and my work was also centered around the communities, the local communities, the sometimes very hard to reach communities. And these are the places where it is often tough. So I live with people in their community. So you can imagine how that might be, like talking about a sensitive issue of that nature in, I would say, kind of like conservative communities, for lack of better, better words. So it was hard in a sense that, one, it is a very sensitive issue and people don't want to open up to it. So sometimes you will start the conversation and people will just shut you down. Sometimes people will just insult you and not only you, they will insult your parents. And, you, you, you know, it's hard. Sometimes you, you are just perhaps viewed as kind of like shame. <laughs> and that's a lot to take. So 
it's risking it all. It's risking so many things, including sometimes your, your mental health, which I like, I don't encourage people to ignore because it's very important. <laughs> sometimes it takes a toll on us. But like, again, I don't regret doing that. I don't regret even sitting in organizations where um, some organizations might be, you know, we are a women's rights organization, but you talk about some of these things and they are like, oh no, like, you know, we we don't want to focus on this. And, and like now, most organizations, of course, don't get me wrong, most organizations in the Gambia are talking about female genital mutilation, cutting openly, but it was hard, let's say 10 years ago. You know, you face your 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 um management, senior management, and you are like, well, have your plan, share your plan rather. And female genital mutilation of is part of it. Like it's it's hard for most organizations. It's like, yeah, we are dealing with women's rights, but this is not part of it. So it's like, you know, that compartmentalization of like issues to address and not to address. And I don't blame most of the people at the time because it's just a fear, you know, of like you being chased away or, or the fear of probably you not having enough funding or whatever. So it's like multiple issues. So at the time, again, I was not financially stable. I still am not. <laughs> but but just to say like the kind of passion, the, the kind of need that I felt, the, the anger in me was pushing. Like you don't have to wait to have all the resources to do this. You don't have to get the permission from people. Yes, it is risky because there are times that your life is not even safe in certain communities talking about these things. But you know, when you have a goal, you have something that is so much there to you. You don't you don't tend to care much. So the pushback is a lot and nobody wants their parents to be insulted. Nobody wants to have themselves being exposed to the point where like, you know, you talk, people are like, oh, you know, that troublemaker, um, you know, that complicated person. It's, it's hard, right? But for me, the risk is all worth it. It is because I don't care if I have a pushback from people. You know, not that it don't get to me, but what is most important to me is like having girls not being exposed to female genital mutilation, not being mutilated, not, not having to think about them not completing their education because they will be married off soon. So, so it's, it's, just, it's just a strong desire to push for change, even at small levels. That's what matters to me. And yeah, the challenges were very evident, but it is what it is, I guess. <laughs> yeah, female genital mutilation, it's deeply rooted in culture. And in our African communities, we don't talk about sexuality or relationships. We don't have this conversation with parents, aunties, or grandmothers. And there will be a pushback from community members, community leaders, when we do want to advocate for change. Some people might experience judgment, discrimination, their parents might be ostracized. But FGMC, we, we need to have these conversations. And in order to advocate and protect young girls from harmful practices. And as you said, we don't only have the negative aspects of traditional culture, we do have the positive, but we do need to talk about those negatives so that the negatives can end. Mm -hmm. We know that FGMC is a very sensitive topic, one that is hardly spoken about. So when we do have the opportunity to speak to survivors, it is important to mirror terms in order to prevent the feeling of stigma and discrimination. Mm -hmm. Many see themselves as survivors, not victims, and some are okay with the term mutilation, while some prefer cutting or circumcision. Mm -hmm. Tell us how language is an essential and powerful tool in advocacy work. 
Oh yeah, thank you. That's another critical point. Um, language is essential. Language changes everything. It could change the context. It could it could lead to a positive outcome or a very negative outcome, right? So in advocacy, like at least with my experience with FGM and like pushing back against other um, harmful traditional practices, I am very sensitive to what language is used. So for FGM, FGMC, coming from, again, like I said, the practicing community, mostly I use mutilation. But mutilation, I was so much focused on it just to make sure that the policymakers know and understand the magnitude of the problem, of the act or the practice of FGMC. So for, for most people, like you talk to them at the time, it was like, oh, you know, it's it's not something that is sensitive. It's it's not something that is as deep as you people are talking about. Because like in the Gambia, for instance, Gambia is a highly Muslim country, I would say. And you have male circumcision, which is a mandatory in the, at least in the Islamic religion, right? So mm-hmm. many people are know, they know about male circumcision. So I've had this interaction when I when I used to work for an organization called Wasu Gambia Kafo and I was a national trainer and we would go into communities we will teach we will talk to or like train the health professionals we would, we would talk to some community members and mostly like this issue of circumcision comes up a lot and people trying to like interchange it with male circumcision mm-hmm. but what I tell people is like what is being caught from from men is different from what is being caught from women right so yeah. for, for, for men an equivalent of the clitoris in the men which is like the, the glands penis and everything that is not touched it's just the foreskin that is taken off mm-hmm. now for the women we just have the clitoris and the clitoris is cut off mostly like in my community like i said right and even though now like we've, we've come to realize that you know the clitoris is way more than what is exposed like we have more high percent of it internally cutting that external factor it's like you 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 are you are denying that that woman of so many things and like exposing her to other health implications. So it is different from male circumcision. So understanding it from that dimension, because if we continue like in the Gambia, and this is within, again, context matter here, this is within a practicing community, right? If we use mutilation, we are trying to push back to say, what you are doing, you are not just circumcising, you, you are mutilating a part. It's like when you just cut off my ear, it's like when you cut off my nose, you are taking off an essential part of my body, right? So again, it makes policymakers understand the magnitude of the issue of female genital mutilation. But again, like some people are comfortable with circumcision and that is okay, that should be recognized, that should be should be accepted. If a practicing community says, you know, we don't want to use mutilation, it is too harsh. We want to use circumcision, that is still okay. So for me, language is very relative and it should be used based on ro- local realities. And whatever time people are comfortable with identifying their communities based on what is happening to them, that's okay. But I use mutilation, honestly. Um, I just feel like it is important that people people understand the magnitude within the practicing community. That is just what I would say. And also to not kind of like confuse it to male circumcision because they are different. There are different parts of the female and the male bodies are being, being chopped off. And, you know, people just have to understand it from that dimension, I guess. Yeah, mirroring the terms that communities are comfortable with is very important because 
as an advocate, you are their voice. So we want to represent them. And in just with language in general, that empowering terminology and effective communication is important with passing the message about ending FGMC, whether we're using mutilation, um, circumcision, cutting, we're trying to pass that message, but we're not trying to like pull down or survivors, we still want to empower them and properly represent them. So evidence suggests that empowering women and girls are protective factors against harmful and discriminatory practices and essential for achieving gender equality. When women and girls are empowered and provided the tools, they can reach their full potential and have control over their lives and control over their bodies. From your experience, what actions are most likely to bring about change and abandonment of the practice? What works and what does not work? Hmm. Again, this can be looked at um, in multifaceted ways, right? For female genital mutilation specifically, or like other deep-rooted additional practices, there is no just one way, one right way of like doing it, but like a combination of different methods. And sometimes it might be trial and error, but, but a combination of at least different ways. One way that I would say with regards to female genital mutilation that we've done is continuous consciousness raising very intentional, very deliberate, and just pushing it forward, like talking to people. Because I realize sometimes like you talk to people, some are like, but we've not seen, let's say we've not seen any Gambian realities. Like if we, if we like all the things that we've been seeing, all the photos, the pictures, for instance, or the videos are not videos of like Gambian people. And that is why like mm-hmm. Working with like an organization, for instance, like Wasugambe Kafo was was very significant for me because then it helps you to work with people who are going into labor, for instance, and delivery, training them, then giving them the forms. And like they would do a pre and post kind of like test, you know. So after, let's say before delivery, they would they would look at um, a mutilated woman have a, have some questions like interact with them and after post delivery they would also like us so we were able to like gather that information and like that was very helpful so sometimes evidence evidence based kind of like approach is very helpful in tackling some of these things because our people will ask questions but also like just making them aware because the fact that it has been done for generations does not make it right the bottom line fact is like for most women like you know to go through pain is part of being a woman, is part of womanhood. And this is what our people were made to believe. So like just pushing back against those notions of like womanhood should be pain, we should not talk about issues, it's just who we are, it's how we are created, takes some time. So that's why it has to be very intentional because it, it has some, it must have some long-term goals. Like, you know, something as deeply rooted, as entrenched as female genital mutilation, you talk to people, it's not, a one-day conversation. It's not a one-year conversation. It's not a two-year conversation. It, it, it must have a long-term goal, like continuously talking with women using different strategies. So other than that, also laws help. Um, in the Gambia, for instance, like it was outlawed in 2015 years late, very, very recent, but I'm glad there is something that we could say, you know, legally now you cannot practice this you know, it helps. However, laws alone cannot do anything. 
right? It is still practiced, honestly speaking, in most of my communities. But, but laws together with sensitizations, with, with consciousness raising, with, with um, deliberate programs, whether that is through community radios, TV, if there is, there, is, there is any, and just small gatherings and just having sometimes family conversations help a lot. So, so yes, there are multifaceted ways that we could look into it. But for me, it's working in the communities with the people that matter, having the conversations, like knowing them and sometimes financial independence, right? Because for women, mostly like the people that practice female genital mutilation tell you, well, you know, if I leave this, because when you cut a girl, the family pays you, that's yeah. the second place. So for some, it's also like an income generation activity that they do. Right. So like looking at alternative ways of making sure that women are also economically independent, pushing again, pushing for education. Right. When when girls and women are educated, they know and they have a voice. They can always push back. So there are there are many ways that we can look at this. Education is key. Consciousness raising is key. Laws is key. And, you know, the, the political will, let me not forget that, the political will to implement the law. I think this is what we are lacking in most countries, like in the Gambia, for instance. It's, it's a lot, right? Because there is still a debate of it being okay. Like you have to do it. And we have some very major religious leaders literally encouraging female genital mutilation and saying like, you know, it, it, it has to be done. So I, I guess some states don't want to like head of governments like the president and anyone in that high decision making position. They, they don't want to have a friction with, with the religious leaders and it, it becomes a problem. So like the political will has to be there to implement the law to the leader, regardless of who is involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to work at the level of each community because what will work for one community might not work for another. What will yeah. work in the Gambia might not work in Somalia or yeah. Sudan. So we have to work within each community's specific cultural and religious views and norms. And that's mm-hmm. how we can have a change and a shift towards mm-hmm. ending female genital mutilation or cutting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you raise a very crucial point in saying it's not a short-term conversation and it's about collaborations, working alongside not just governments but communities and finding solutions for these various intersecting factors that play a role in FGMC. There's effectiveness in that collective action. FGMC should not be just an immigrant issue but a Canadian issue. How can Canadians contribute to ending harmful practices and better support survivors. Oh, wow, thank you. We definitely need to talk about this. So, so, so in, my, in my view, like I said, the othering, like, you know, it's not our problem, it's their problem. It's not a problem in Canada. It's, it's very problematic. It's, it's very, I, I find it very troubling. I, I think Canada could look at female genital mutilation as an inequality issue, right? As an issue of like patriarchy, as, a, as an issue of like control over women's bodies. And for me, for a country that is kind of like seen, like Canada's global, one of the key global reputations of Canada is equality between women and men, right? is diversity, this idea of multiculturalism, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, if immigrants come in here, they don't leave their experiences back. They don't leave their needs back home. They come, they come with them. 
So approaching it as a Canadian issue would be critical. It will help in like seeing the need to do something. And to do something in what sense? It could be resource allocation. It could be serious investment for both within Canada and outside, but mostly like for the survivors or victims, regardless of how an individual might identify themselves, is about like investing in the area of female genital mutilation, recognizing it as, as a women's rights issue, as a human rights issue, as an issue that attempts to take control over women's bodies, because this is this is just about it. So patriarchy, patriarchy kind of like shows in different forms. And for us in the practicing communities, this is one way that it shows. If Canada don't see this as a challenge to women's fundamental human rights as an issue that you know should be addressed, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be that urgency. There wouldn't be that 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 need to be serious about it. There wouldn't be that need to have sustainable projects, to have sustainable activities, to have sustainable resources. You know, to 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 have something in place, policies, practices, whatever that is in place for the people that experience female genital mutilation, as well as those that are at risk of being exposed to female genital mutilation. So we have to see it as a Canadian problem, not just an African problem, not just a Muslim problem, because it is not. It's yeah. far from that. It is It is a global issue. It is a public health issue. And it has to be treated through that lens. Yeah, Canada needs to take FGMC more seriously, as it is a form of gender-based violence that some of its citizens have or could experience. They should not only focus on sexual and physical violence, but there should be, as you said, more policies in place for FGMC, forced marriages, because it is a reality for some Canadians. Wow, what a rich conversation we've had this morning. Thank you so much, Matita, for joining us and for having this conversation. We look at these things and we think, okay, how can we make a change? And yet here you are making the changes and talking about this difficult topic. So thank you so much for joining us and letting us know the importance of advocacy, allyship and activism towards ending the practice. Thank you again for that. Thank you very much, Matita, for joining us today. It was really nice having this discussion with you. And as we know, speaking up and speaking out is the first step towards advocacy and ending FGMC. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to share my work, my experience, and my future goals towards female genital mutilation in Canada and beyond. Thank you. Next week, we will discuss the role of community-based programs in response to gender-based violence among racialized and immigrant women. Our guest next week will shed some light on how and why community-based programs are crucial in the response to this pandemic. Mm-hmm.